I noticed while I was away that both weeks the guest speaker uh, preached from the book of Psalms. And so, guess what? This morning, I too will be preaching from the book of Psalms. We'll continue our series through the Gospel of John after the mission trip. I will be in Texas with our team this week. But for now, open your Bibles to Psalm 3, and we're going to study all eight verses. Psalm 3 will start in a moment in verse 1. Let's play a game called, What Are the Chances? For example, have you ever wondered, what are the chances, what are the odds of certain things happening? For example, the odds that you will be struck by lightning are 1 in 114,000. It could happen, but it's not very likely. The odds of you being attacked by a shark are 1 in 3.7 million Maybe a little higher here in South Florida, I'm not sure. The odds of you being audited by the IRS are 1 in 160. I read that the odds of being born with 11 fingers or 11 toes on a hand or a foot is 1 in 500. Seems kind of high to me. But here's one you'd better pay attention to. What are the odds that you will face trouble in life? One in one or a 100% chance. The point is no one gets a free pass in life when it comes to adversity. No one is exempt. Jesus said in John's gospel, in this world you will have troubles, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But Jesus promised us that we would face trials and troubles in this life. Sometimes those problems are the result of our own doing. And sometimes the trouble we're in is simply the result of circumstances. But if you are a born-again child of God, you will not have to look for trouble. Trouble will indeed look for you. The question is... How will you respond when that happens? How can your faith thrive during those times of trouble? That's exactly what our text is about this morning. Now, we know the exact context of Psalm 3 because the text explicitly tells us. You will notice this little note before verse 1. It says, A psalm of David when he fled Absalom his son. Now that little note, yes, it is found in the Hebrew manuscripts. Yes, we believe that little note is part of the Word of God. It tells us the context of this story that this psalm points back to the story that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We read that David had committed a grievous sin against God He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. She became pregnant. David responded by trying to cover up his sin. So he invited her husband from the battlefield, hoping he would go home to his wife, but that did not happen. 
So finally, David ordered Uriah sent to the front lines of battle, and then he ordered a ridiculous military maneuver that would ensure that Uriah, uh, Uriah was killed. David then took Bathsheba as his own wife. Later, he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, who spoke those famous words and said, You are the man. He told David that because of his sin, the sword would never depart from his house. And sure enough, as we read further in the story, that is exactly what happened. He had one son named Amnon who attacked and violated his half-sister Tamar. She had a full brother named Absalom, and he sought revenge by killing Amnon. Absalom then went into exile. Eventually, he returned, and he began to plot as to how he would overthrow his father. Eventually, David had to flee Jerusalem. He abandoned his palace. He abandoned his throne. And when we read Psalm 3, David's son Absalom has temporarily taken over and now he is pursuing his father David in order to kill him. All of this is like a bad episode of Dr. Phil. Here is David fleeing for his life, trying to escape. He goes as far as he can, but eventually he cannot take another step. Absolutely exhausted he stops and he lies down and he looks up with literally the stars above him as his roof. And in that moment, God gives him this psalm. Psalm 3 was inspired and was written not just for David. It was also written for us because all of us will experience trials and tribulations and adversity at some point in life. And it's not just David's life that was in danger in Psalm chapter 3. It was really his faith being tested to the limit as well. And so I want you to see in this psalm three things that you must do if your faith is going to thrive during those troubled times of life. And first of all, there are voices you must ignore. There are some voices that you're going to hear that you must ignore in life. Look at verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. We all have enemies in life. But David's enemies seem to be increasing by the hour. And when David said in verse 1, Many are those who rise up against me, the people who were rising up against him, the people who were attacking him, many of them were the very people who once served him, who once counseled him, who once protected him. And it's bad enough that all of them are rising up against David. It's bad enough that he has to flee from his own palace and his own throne. It's even worse that his own son is the one who overthrew him and is now trying to kill him. Look at verse 2. 
Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Notice that last word. It's almost certainly a musical notation. We believe that that word means pause, that when they would sing this psalm, they would take a moment and pause. When you see that word selah, it is kind of God's way of saying to you, pause, stop, listen, learn from what you just heard. But notice, what were David's enemies saying? They were saying, there's no help for him in God. You ever been at a place in your life where people said that about you? No hope, no help, not even in God. Now, who is saying this about David? And why would all of these people say this about David? Let me tell you who was not saying this. It wasn't the Egyptians who were saying, there's no help for him in God. It wasn't the Canaanites or the Philistines who were saying, there's no help for him in God. No, the people who were saying, there's no help for David in God, were the very people who knew David best. You say, well, why would they say such a thing? Well, it helps to remember the story. David just experienced the first real defeat of his life. You realize from the time he was a boy, God just delivered him over and over again when he was a shepherd boy and he was guarding the flock and the Bible says that a lion attacked the flock. He fought off the lion and God delivered David from the lion. And then the same thing happened with a bear and God delivered him from the bear. And then we know the story of David and Goliath, how God delivered David from the giant. There had never been a battle that David lost until now. And so this is what the people were saying. They were saying, David, God delivered you all of those other times. Why didn't God deliver you this time? That was the question. It was kind of like the proverbial pink elephant in the room. Have you ever had one of those times where everybody was thinking the same thing, but no one wanted to say it? But then finally, someone broke the ice, and they said out loud what everyone else knew, what everyone else was thinking. That's what you have in verse 2. They thought, well, David, it must be because God is through with you. It must be because of your sin with Bathsheba. David, you crossed the line, you went too far, and now God is finished with you. Many are they who say there's no help for him in God. And I imagine David was tempted for just a moment to listen to those voices. I believe personally that for David, the hardest part of all of this was the knowledge that all of this trouble that he was in came about because of his own actions. That all of this defeat and all of these losses and all of this hurt and all of this misery, he just had to look up to God and say, God, I did this. I did all of this. It's on me. We know that not all of our trouble in life is the result of personal sin. Sometimes it is. 
And this is one of those times. Now, let me tell you why it is so important that we understand this. You are going to hear the voice of verse 2 in your life. You're going to hear it many times. Many are they who will say, there is no help for you in God. You're going to hear it silently, if not out loud. And here's what oftentimes happens so many times in our churches. We will meet someone who is in trouble, and they're not in trouble because of anything that they have done. They're in trouble because of circumstances beyond their control, and there wasn't anything that they could have done about it. And what do we often do as a church? So many times we'll see that person, and we'll come to them and put our arms around them and encourage them, and we will say, hey, let us help you. God has not abandoned you. Keep trusting in the Lord. But then someone else comes along. And this person is also in trouble. But this person is in trouble because of things they have done. This person is in trouble because of their own sin. For example, we see the alcoholic whose life is wrecked by addiction. And someone will say, well, he did that. He put himself there. We'll see the the smoker with lung cancer. We'll see the promiscuous man with HIV. And someone will say, well, you know, you reap what you sow. That's true. But if we're not careful, we can forget something. We can forget that our God loves lifting people out of the pits of their own sin which they have dug for themselves. God loves doing that. And if we're not careful, we can be like David's enemies. Maybe we don't say it out loud, but we imply there is no help for him in God. When you hear the voice of voice two, that is a voice you must ignore in life and if you are a born-again child of God and you fall in sin and at some point you will listen God may discipline you God may chastise you but one thing God will not do God will not disown you and so you must learn to ignore those voices that say the contrary. You must learn to ignore those voices that say there is no help for you in God. There are voices you must ignore, but then we also see in this psalm there's a reality you need to accept. There's a reality you need to accept. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Oh, how I love that first word of verse 3, but. Sometimes when you're reading a psalm like this, and it's so dark, it's so stormy, but then comes that moment in the psalm where the clouds part and the sun begins to shine. Here it is in verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. Let me talk about that word shield for just a moment. Back in biblical days, they had two kinds of shields. 
that soldiers would use. On the one hand, there was a shield that was like a giant frisbee. They would attach it to the forearm. Think Captain America. This was a shield that was used for offense. That is not the kind of shield that David is referring to in verse 3. David is actually talking about the other kind of shield. And maybe you've seen this shield being depicted in some ancient war movie. This kind of shield is like a giant door. You could hide your entire body behind it. The enemy may be shooting arrows at you, but you are safe behind that shield. And with that big, heavy shield, you're not going to move quickly. You may move forward just one inch at a time, but slowly but surely you're advancing because you're safe behind this shield. This is the kind of shield that David is talking about. And I want you to notice how David described it. David said, you, Lord, are a shield for me. Now, that word for in the Hebrew, it can also be translated around me, which is why many of you may have a Bible translation that says, you, O Lord, are a shield around me. If God is just a shield in front of me, I'm in trouble when arrows fall on me from above. If God is just a shield in front of me, I'm in trouble when someone attacks me from behind. But David says, oh God, you are like that shield, but in every direction, no matter who attacks me or how they attack me, no matter where the attacks come from, you are there to defend me. You are the shield all around me. And therefore, if anything at all touches your life, we know it first has to pass through the sovereign filter of God's hand. And if God allows it in your life, it's because he's going to use it to accomplish his purposes for you. David says, God, you are my shield and my glory. If there's anything glorious in my life, David says, it's you. If there's anything I have worth bragging about, it's you. He says, you are my glory and the one who lifts my head. I love that. What does someone do when they really get down, when they really get discouraged? They do this. They lower their heads. Maybe you've seen this in sports. Some team just scored a goal or a touchdown, and that team is celebrating. And then you see the players on the other team, and their heads are just lowered. And sometimes you can hear the coach on the sideline yelling at his players, saying, hey, lift up your heads, lift up your heads. Well, maybe when David said, God, you are the one who lifts up my head, maybe he's talking about that, that encouragement that we get. But I also believe that there's something bigger that David might be referring to here. When David uses this phrase, when, God says, when David says that God lifts up his head, this phrase, to lift up one's head, only had appeared one time in all of Scripture up to that point in the book of Genesis in chapter 40. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but it's that story of Joseph, how Joseph, as you know, was betrayed by his brothers, wound up an Egyptian slave. Then he was falsely accused, wound up in an Egyptian jail. 
And while Joseph was in jail for a crime he did not commit, the Bible says that Pharaoh sent two men to join him in that jail, those two men being his cupbearer and his baker. The Bible says that those two men one night both had dreams. Joseph interpreted both of their dreams, but I want you to listen to what Joseph said to the cupbearer. In Genesis 40, 13, now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. Understand that when Joseph says to the cupbearer, in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head, he's not saying Pharaoh is going to come visit the jail to encourage you. He's not saying, I know you're depressed right now, but Pharaoh's going to come along and say some kind words in order to lift up your spirits. No, when he says that Pharaoh will lift up your head, that means you are going to be restored to the king's service. So what does David do? He takes that phrase, he appears to borrow it and apply it to God. And he says, you, O Lord, are the one who lifts up my head. And so here, he's not only talking about encouragement, although, yes, this is very encouraging. He's talking about restoration. He's saying, God, you will restore me. Maybe you're like David, and on some level you blew it. And truth be told, it's your fault it's the result of your sin. And if that's you, listen to me carefully. Your past sin and your previous failures do not change the fact that God is sovereign and God is in control. And God has a plan that takes into account the sins he knows you will commit and the mistakes he knows you are going to make. And God is in the restoration business. He is the one who lifts up your head. Look at verse 4. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. His holy hill, David is referring to. To Jerusalem, and he's saying, Not only, oh God, are you going to answer me, but you answer me from this holy hill. Now, the holy hill that David is referring to is that place where sacrifices for sin took place. And I want you to think about this David is down, he's discouraged, he's fleeing for his life, he's full of questions, but then he remembers what God had already revealed to him and how God would one day deal with sin. And how will God deal with sin? Is God going to deal with sin based on our performance? Absolutely not. If David's restoration depends on his performance, he is in trouble, his enemies are right, and there is no help for him in God. 
God does not deal with David's sin based on David's performance, just as he doesn't deal with our sin based on our performance. No, God deals with David's sin and our sin based on the performance of Christ, who lived a perfect life and then laid down his life on the cross for you and for me. You see, there is going to be a sacrifice on a holy hill, and we have another name for that sacrifice. We call it Calvary. And we know that on that same hill, that same mountain that David is referring to in verse 4, Jesus would come and lay down his life as the payment for our sin. And so God not only answers David, but he answers him from his holy hill. He answers from the place of sacrifice. God answers with the cross. And God says, here is forgiveness. Here is hope. Here is life. And here is the chance for you to begin again. And so this is the reality that we must accept. There are some, voice, some voices you need to ignore, and there's a reality you need to accept. But then we also see in this passage there is a peace you can experience. There is a peace you can experience. Look at that last stanza. It begins in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. David's enemies are pursuing him. And yet he says, I just had the best night of sleep I've had in years. How is that even possible? Reminds us of that story of Peter in the book of Acts. He was going to be executed the following day before the Lord delivered him. But what was Peter doing in that jail cell the night before his supposed execution? Sleeping like a baby. How does somebody have this kind of peace? It comes from knowing Jesus and knowing that he is your shield, that he is your glory, and he is the one who lifts up your head. Look at verse 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Notice those words, David says, I will not be afraid. I just want to ask him, David, how can you not be afraid? Who would not be afraid in a situation like this? David can say, I am not afraid because he has learned a valuable lesson. He has learned that God all by himself is always a majority. Hey, if God is on your side, that means you are in the majority. Somebody said, if God is on your side, it does not matter who's not. And if God is not on your side, it does not matter who is. Again, when we read this prayer of David's in verse 7, it helps to remember the context. It helps to remember the story. The Bible tells us that while David was fleeing Absalom, uh, he received some more bad news as if it wasn't bad enough already. He was told that his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, had turned against him 
and was now advising Absalom. And when David was told that, he prayed. He was in a hurry. He didn't have time for a long prayer. And so he prayed one of those prayers on the run. You know what I mean? Never underestimate the effectiveness of a short prayer on the run. And with eyes open and feet in motion, David prays this prayer in 2 Samuel 15, 31. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's it. That's the prayer. God, take the counsel of Ahithophel and make it sound like foolishness to the people who want to, hear, who want to kill me. Let me tell you why David prayed that particular prayer. He prayed that particular prayer because Ahithophel was such a wise man. The Bible says that whenever he spoke to the people, it was like unto the word of God. And so David knew if Ahithophel, my counselor, my advisor, if he is now advising the man who's trying to kill me, oh, I know Absalom is getting excellent advice. And so in a hurry, he prays this prayer. He didn't have time to kneel. He just says, God, would you please take that good advice that I know Ahithophel is going to give to my enemy and cause it to sound like foolishness in his ears. To make a long story short, that's exactly what happened. The Bible says that Ahithophel did give Absalom very good advice. The best advice. He said, if you want to kill David, real simple, do it now. He's gone as far as he can go. He's right there, ready for the taking. And Ahithophel was absolutely right. And at first, Absalom liked his advice. But you know what happened? By the end of the chapter, he chose to accept the counsel of his other advisors. And he rejected the good counsel of Ahithophel. You notice what God did? God answered David's prayer exactly the way he prayed it. He caused Ahithophel's counsel to sound like foolishness to Absalom. God did exactly what David asked him to do. Never underestimate, again, those prayers on the run, those quick prayers. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord your blessing is upon your people, Selah. By the way, this word salvation in verse 8, the Hebrew word is the same word which translated help in verse 2. At the beginning of the psalm, many were saying, there is no help, there is no salvation for David. By the end of the psalm, David says, Oh, yes, there is, because salvation belongs to the Lord, and because I belong to the Lord, therefore salvation belongs to me. 
when we read this psalm and when we remember the story of David fleeing for his life, I'm reminded of something that happened in the life of a man named Luther Bridgers. Luther Bridgers, if you don't know the name, uh, years ago he was uh, a preacher and a singer and a hymn writer and an evangelist. And one day in his ministry, he was off uh, conducting revival meetings at a church away from home. And after the service, he went home and Luther Bridgers received the phone call that no one ever, ever wants to get. He got back to the hotel or the place where he was staying and he got that call, was told that his house had caught on fire and his wife and two sons inside were unable to escape and that they perished in the flames. He hung up the phone and he sat there by his bed for a very long time. And according to Mr. Bridgers, he trembled and he shook and he wept. And finally he went out and he just began randomly walking the streets in the middle of the night in that town where he had been preaching. And as he was just randomly just walking and, and, and weeping, he came to a river and he walked over a bridge. And when he got to the very top of that bridge, he said he looked down and he thought to himself for a moment, I can make all of this end right now. All of this pain, all of this grief that I'm feeling, he did not know how to swim. And he knew if he jumped off that bridge in the middle of the night, he would absolutely drown. And as Mr. Luther Bridgers was standing there looking down on the waters below, he said, I prayed a quick prayer. And he said, oh God, if you don't do something right now, I cannot live anymore. He said that, in that moment, it felt as if God's very hand was upon his shoulder. And that God spoke to him in that still, small voice. God spoke directly to his heart. And he said, Luther, if you can trust me with your salvation, you can trust me with your sorrow. And all of a sudden, he said he couldn't explain it, but he began to experience that peace that passes all understanding. And yes, he mourned. Yes, he grieved. And after a while away from the ministry, he eventually went back to preaching. He eventually went back to singing. In fact, he actually wrote some of the hymns that we sing to this day. In fact, it was this same Luther Bridgers who would go on to write that great hymn, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. If you can trust God with your salvation, you can trust God with your sorrow. You can trust God with your sickness. You can trust God with any trouble that you are experiencing in your life today. And you know what? Just like David in Psalm 8, you too can say, the Lord is a shield around me. He is my glory. He's the one who lifts up my head. Therefore, I will not fear because my salvation comes from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm and for this story 
because all of us at some point will find ourselves in trouble or adversity. And sometimes it's on us. We did it. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a world that is broken under the curse of sin. But whatever the cause, whatever the reason, we can trust you. We can say, the Lord is a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And we thank you, O God, that you responded to David in his moment of need and that you answered him, the Bible says, from your holy hill, from that place of sacrifice. And you answered us, all of our cries of desperation, pleading with you to do something about all of the the sickness and all of the suffering and all of the evil in the world today. You answered from your holy hill you answered from calvary you answered by sending jesus christ from heaven to earth who lived a perfect life and who took our place on the cross exchanging his innocence for our guilt when he died for our sin so that whosoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life god we thank you for this glorious gospel and we thank you that we can say salvation belongs to the lord And if we belong to the Lord, salvation then belongs to us. God, I pray for any who are here today who have not received that gift of salvation, that they would take that step of faith today and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me and you rose again. And therefore, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and wash my sins away and be Lord of my life. To put into action that song we sang earlier, I surrender that would be their prayer their declaration today father would you help all of us to take what we have heard and apply it to our lives so that our faith would thrive and we would continue to trust you no matter what kind of trouble we find ourselves in in life and we thank you and we praise you in jesus name as we continue in prayer with heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment i'm going to give you that opportunity to pray individually and quietly before we observe the lord's supper we are to examine ourselves and so i would encourage you to take these next few moments in the silence of your heart and just ask god if there's some sin that you need to confess if there's some repentance that needs to take place in your life and give god the opportunity to speak to you through that still small voice and as he does i would just invite you to respond and hand that over to the lord But while you are praying, maybe you're that person who this morning needs to respond by taking that step of faith and placing your faith in Christ as Savior and Lord for the very first time. And maybe this morning you need to say, I will follow Christ. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. And therefore, Jesus, I surrender all. Make that your prayer now. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved as we take these moments and as we pray, as you call on the Lord in the silence of your heart, however he leads you respond this morning.